Okay, James, I'm going to play a game with you. Go on. It's called Georgia or Georgia. I'm going to read out some headlines from the past couple of days, and you have to tell me whether or not I'm talking about Georgia the country or Georgia the state. Excellent. Go for it. So headline number one. Oh, this one's quite nice, actually. A Georgia town will hand deliver everything will be okay yard signs with profits supporting local artists and art teachers. Country or state? That has to be the state. You know, I feel like... Indeed it is. That's uh, locals in Dunwoody County, Georgia. Oh, that's where my in-laws are from. Oh, really? Yeah. That's lovely. Um, Okay, number two. Georgia COVID-19 cases rise to 1,026 as deaths increase to 32. Country or state? Country? A thousand seems like a lot. Nope. Really? The state? That's the state. Oh, God. Yeah. That's as of March 24th in the middle of the day. Um, And finally, okay, this is a good one. Georgia man pointed gun at woman because he was scared of coronavirus. Country or state? I want to say the country. Nope. Wait, are there no guns in in Tbilisi, Georgia? Not as ubiquitous as, as in the US. I guess that makes sense. Hello and welcome back to Don't Touch Your Face, foreign policy's daily podcast on all things coronavirus. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer here at Foreign Policy. And I'm James Palmer, Foreign Policy's senior editor. On today's episode, we're going to take a look at Georgia, a small, relatively poor country in the South Caucasus, which so far has proven to be an unlikely success story in its handling of the coronavirus. Later on, we'll hear from Natalia Antalava, a Georgian journalist who's based in the capital of Tbilisi. But first this. The world is changing in ways that affect your life and your business. Do you have the intelligence you need? Now, FP is offering Insider. With a new FP Insider subscription, you will get all of FP's content plus exclusive access to data-driven intelligence, power maps that distill complex issues, in-depth special reports, and conference calls on the biggest stories and trends. Get global insight you can bank on. Subscribe to FP Insider today at foreignpolicy.com slash FP Insider. So I actually feel really proud of little Georgia. I mean, it's a small and not terribly rich country, which less than two decades ago was on the brink of becoming a failed state, more or less. And so far, they are way ahead of the Europeans and definitely way ahead of the US in slowing the spread of coronavirus. You know, it's Georgia's always been the little engine that could. That's very sweet. Like, all I associate Georgia with is Stalin, who was born there, which is very unfair because it it really has been kind of a little success story of its own since being reborn in 1991. And, you know, that's despite sort of civil wars and chaos and all this stuff that we associate with the Caucasus. I mean, Russian invasion, you know, losing 20% of their territory to Russian occupation. I mean, Georgia's had its had its fair share of slings and arrows since the collapse of the Soviet Union. But I, so I lived in Georgia for a year in 2016, 2017. And everyone who goes to live there, I feel like, becomes a little bit obsessed with Georgia. And you can definitely count me amongst those ranks. And one of the things I always found really fascinating is that, especially outside of the capital, Tbilisi, it's a relatively poor country, you know, levels of development are low. Um, 
I went on a road trip with a friend and she was driving and like you do outside of the capital get sideways glances if you're a woman driving a car. Um, a there woman are especially... in a car? <laughs> it's a, what a blasphemy yes. against God is this? I know. And, and there's definitely some really, really dated attitudes towards things like gay marriage and things like that. But on a policy level, you know, since the Rose Revolution in 2003, successive Georgian governments have managed to get certain things really, really right and are actually streets ahead of Europe and the US on some things. So things like, you know, there's in the center of Tbilisi, there's this really shiny building which kind of looks like a mushroom patch in a really nice way. Like it has these kind of like cap-shaped uh, domes on top of it. That is a sentiment that I only really associate with the Slavic world. You know, gaze upon these beautiful <laughs> mushrooms. Look at these rich fields. The family will eat well this winter. Oh God, yeah. I, I didn't think of that. It is, it is, that is very East this European. Is, you sentiment. know, my, my uncle actually is a massive mycologist and, and like the whole family in, in Warwick lives off the countryside. He's great at roadkill too. Roadkill and mushrooms. Shout out to my uncle Steve. <laughs> Back to Georgia. Um, you can go to this this mushroom house, also known as I think the Justice House, um, and you can any any of those like really annoying interactions that you have to have with the state, like getting a passport, registering a business, birth, death, marriages, all of those things, you know, which in the U.S. can be excruciatingly painful, as anyone who's been to the DMV will know. Um, you can do all at this one central place in Tbilisi and. It's pretty quick. I mean, I've never obviously had to do it myself, but they say that you can go and get a new passport in like an hour, which is just mind boggling when you think about wow. the paperwork that you have to jump through. Yeah, at least for us in the UK. And so George has managed to get certain big picture stuff really right. I mean, they were able to just com almost completely stamp out corruption after the Rose Revolution. I mean, I this was before my time in Georgia, but you know, you hear stories about pedestrians being asked for bribes by the traffic police prior to the revolution in 2003. <laughs> and since that, you know, it's it's it has really done a great job of cleaning its act. And I think the coronavirus is another really fundamental example where, you know, despite its problems and certainly its political challenges right now, they have managed to pull together and get a lot right on this. And to talk about this, I spoke over Skype with Natalia Antalava, who is based in the Georgian capital. Natalia is the co-founder of the crisis reporting site Coda Story, which has been covering the pandemic. So Natalia, if you could just start by telling me, you know, what is the situation where you are in Tbilisi just now? Can you go out of the house? Are kids in school? What's going on? They are definitely not at school. They are here. Uh, and they've been at home for the past month. So one thing that wow. Georgia has done differently from uh, many of its neighbors and many other countries it seems around the world is that it took very swift measures very quickly mm -hmm. and very early on. So by the end of February, when uh, the outbreak uh, was clearly getting bad in Iran, which is not exactly neighboring, but is not far away, then uh, the decision was made almost immediately to both close the borders to the Iranians and the Chinese and then uh, shut down the schools and start taking quite serious measures. So that was done early on. And mm -hmm. I think because of that, the Georgians have managed to curb the curve uh, quite early on. So even now, the community transmission, which was much feared, 
has yeah. only began in the last few days. Until then, sort of every case was tracked down. And at the moment, it's 66 official cases. Um, what has also helped Georgia is the fact that it is home to a very large bio lab uh, that the U.S. government has paid for. So the testing situation that gave Georgia a head start with the testing. So they've been testing a lot and the test results are coming through fast. So all of that together kind of have helped. But still, you know, it has helped to deal with the local spread. It has helped to deal with the panic. Uh, So we haven't seen the scenes that we're seeing from New York and London, from the Western world of sort of empty toilet paper shelves and supermarkets and so on. That hasn't really happened here. But, um, you know, the state of emergency was declared. The lockdown is getting tighter and tighter. Some of the areas of the countries are being now cordoned off and locked down. There's talk about the uh, the neighborhoods in the capital now going into like very local lockdowns. And the, you know, the overall effect on the economy, you know, is just dead. Yeah. So it sounds like people have trust that the Georgian government is handling this well. I think they did for the beginning, but I wouldn't overestimate the, the trust. I think people right. are going along with this kind of idea that we need to take it seriously. And I think mm-hmm. the fact that the government took it seriously from the very start has helped it, you know. But I think the initial boost of confidence that people have had has been disappearing as, as quickly as the value of the local currency, which has oh, been no. plummeting. So, um, and I think as the economic kind of the, the disaster of it all sinks in, as more and more people stay home, as more and more people are left without jobs in yeah. an already very, very fragile economy that is yeah. incredibly dependent on tourism. Um, I think that, um, you know, temporary a kind of warm and fuzzy feeling about the government that seemed to be in place in the very beginning will disappear as well. Mm-hmm. So one of the problems that we saw in the early days in the response here in the US was that, was that the issue was politicized. Has that been happening in Georgia or have they left it to the hands of public health professionals? It actually hasn't. So that would I sure. would say that that was another thing that was handled quite well. And I think it really, really helped with the panic early on. I mean, it's also you know, worth mentioning that this is a country that is used to crisis and it is a country that has lived through civil wars and the Russian invasion in 2008 and, you know, very dark period through the 90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it's also a country, and it's interesting because I've been talking to a lot of African journalists and where the spread has been slow. And it was interesting that they've been saying kind of a similar thing that so many African countries know that they can't handle the outbreak. So they got very good at containment. And I think they kind of the sinking realization of the disaster that it will be if it spreads, you know, if we're seeing, you know, Italy's pretty excellent healthcare system completely collapse under the weight of the coronavirus crisis, you know, imagine what will happen in the country that has a tiny GDP and a very struggling economy. I think there's an interesting like cognitive leap which people in developed Western countries are struggling to make. You know, like I'm texting with friends in the UK and they're saying, I never thought that something like this would happen in our lifetimes. And there's this like, because we've never lived through, at least my generation has never lived through an acute crisis in our lifetimes. There's this kind of sense of, oh, we didn't expect that this could happen or would happen here. But, you know, what I'm hearing from countries who've lived through disasters, crises, wars and things are like, you know, they're kind of saying, yep, seen it once before, it can happen again. And there's this kind of like faster response built in. 
Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think the toilet paper is actually quite a good indicator of the difference in the response, because I don't know anyone outside the Western world who is, you know, running around trying to buy up toilet paper, because, you know, there are other ways of keeping your bum clean uh, in the times of crisis. And this is not going to be the thing that you're most worried about. So, uh, you know, so the the non-Western world kind of sits back and laughs and says, oh, look, the novices. We know how to handle this. A lot of the advice about how to limit the spread of the coronavirus, you know, keeping grandchildren away from elderly relatives, avoiding physical contact, you know, limiting to small groups, I feel like is totally anathema to the very close-knit structures of Georgian families. And what we saw in China was that 75 to 80% of clusters of transmission all took place in families. You know, are you afraid that if community spread does start to happen, will people be able to adhere to these rules of keeping kids away from their grandchildren, you know, no physical contact, things like that? This is a terrible question to hear because as you ask me this, I'm watching my mom doing yeah. some gardening on the terrace with my children. So <laughs> that answers it, I think. Uh, oops. Uh, yes, I think it will be hard. You know, so one thing that people have really struggled with here are funerals. You know, there's a bit of a death cult in Georgia. Death is a big deal. Like, this is a time when you, like, stick together and you come together. You know, yesterday I watched a piece on local TV about police breaking up a post-funeral wake, you know, a very important gathering uh, traditionally for people um, in a village. You know, it's so difficult for people to get their heads around that, no, you just can't do it. Same thing it has been with the church. You know, the country is 90% Georgian Orthodox and uh, Orthodox Church in general has not played along. Um, It was way behind the Catholic Church and many of the Muslim countries in terms of, you know, stopping the services, changing the rituals, making rituals safer and so on. So, uh, yeah, if community spread begins on a bigger scale, this will be definitely a huge problem. So Georgia has often been a target of Russian disinformation. Have you seen that around the coronavirus this time? So that's actually a really good question. And the reason I I do have an interesting story answer for you there. So the place where all of the tests have been done uh, for coronavirus in Georgia is this Lugar lab, a Pentagon funded bio lab that is, you know, quite unique for the region. And for years since it was established, about seven or eight years ago, um, it has been a target of a massive, very systematic Russian disinformation campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, every month or so on Russian television, there will be a piece about the Lugar Lab in Tbilisi, funded by the Americans, where Americans are growing whatever it is, the virus of the moment. You know, a- Ebola came from there, the bird flu came from there, and it was very much used by the Russians to turn the country against the United States. And it was, and it worked because, you know, something like 20% of Georgians uh, believed the disinformation, according to like surveys that are about eight to nine months old, and like 40% of them were unsure about it. And that's really the victory for disinformation, right? When people are no longer sure. And it was amazing to watch how that changed in the space of about a month. Mm -hmm. At the end of 
in January, Russians were coming out with a report saying that this is where America's produced the coronavirus. And then, you know, as Luger Lab played more and more important role in testing for coronavirus and the health professionals who worked for Luger Lab started appearing on TV and so on, they turned from this villain into a savior. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, we recently interviewed um, a guy who uh, leads a far right movement here who has been at the forefront of spreading this fake news about the Lugar Lab. And he's now, like, in an interview with us, he came out and said, I would like to thank Lugar Lab and the United States for giving us the Lugar Lab. And it's yeah. incredible to hear that. You know, unfortunately, there are many more, <laughs> there are many other disinformation narratives that have been born in the last month or so. But this one has definitely been killed by coronavirus. Wow. All it took was a pandemic. All it took was just a little pandemic. That was Natalia Antalava speaking over Skype. So we've talked a lot about community on this podcast. And one of the things that mm. the World Health Organization has noted recently is that it wants us to use the term physical distancing instead of social distancing, because in fact, those ties of society are really important at the moment. I mean, I have been finding the kind of the physical limitations of being cooped up at home during a crisis quite disempowering. You know, like we have to stay at home. I mean, that is if you are able to, that is the absolutely the responsible thing to do in the midst of this pandemic. But it's just frustrating to not feel like you can help when there is just, you know, so many people who are going to be devastated by this crisis. And um, over the weekend, the Washington Post had a really useful article for anybody out there who's who's feeling a bit helpless like this. Um, and the headline is just, how can you help during the coronavirus outbreak? And they list a whole bunch of organizations, nonprofits across the country that are helping some of the people who are most affected by the outbreak, including things like Feeding America, Direct Relief, um, Centers for Disease Philanthropy. And if you are in the Washington, D.C. area, if you scroll to the bottom of that page, there's a list of, of local organizations in the Washington area that are also looking for support. So, you know, it's just a little way that we can, you know, do our bit by definitely staying at home but if you have the means you know other ways to help as well and listeners don't forget that we want to hear from you as well tell us how the pandemic is affecting your life wherever you are in the world send in your questions and comments to don't touch your face at foreignpolicy.com and don't forget to check out our coronavirus coverage over at foreignpolicy.com where we have some of the world's leading experts breaking down what's happening and what could be coming next that's it for today's edition of Don't Touch Your Face. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm James Palmer. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to keep up your physical distancing. And don't touch your face. See what I did there? Physical distancing. I know, very good. It it's actually went social distancing in the script. Well, there we go. That's the ability to improvise. It's thinking uh, on the fly. Exactly, banter, yeah. witty bants. <laughs>